Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Welcome, this is Vita Pirdas with the Prison Mindfulness Institute, and I'm happy to be here today with Richard Shankman. Richard has been active in bringing mindfulness practice into prisons and jails since the 1970s. Wow, almost 50 years, huh? And when he began teaching meditation in San Quentin State Prison, the the Marin County Jail, and a San Francisco drug and alcohol rehab center. Richard was a Buddhist chaplain and started mindfulness meditation programs at Salinas Valley State Prison and the Men's Correctional Training Facility, both near Soledad, California. He has been a meditator since 1970 and teaches classes and meditation retreats at Dharma centers and groups internationally. He is the guiding teacher of the Metta Dharma Foundation and co-founder of the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies, as well as Mindful Schools. He has set many silent intensive retreats for periods of 11 months long. He's the author of The Art and Skill of Buddhist Meditation and The Experience of Samadhi, two books, two great books. Read that second book, it's really excellent. So, Richard, so you've been teaching Dharma for a long time, and you've been teaching in prison or were teaching. You know, I don't know if you still are teaching in prisons due to COVID, but what got you started on going into prisons? Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's nice to be with you. Uh, Well, I got started, this was in the, I'm not to the exact date, but it was in the early 1970s. Um, I was living in a yoga ashram. Actually, it was in Marin. And part of what we did as social service, uh, there was a I, the organization called uh, the Prison Ashram Project. Mm-hmm. And um, back then, I, I haven't, I don't know exactly what's with it these days, but Bolazov and Ramdas were the two who really had that going. And so we were, I guess you'd say, the uh, prison ashram uh, West Coast. And so we were going into uh, San Quentin prison uh, back then. Um, well, now it's a level two, although it has a death row. But but back then it was a level four, which was the highest, you know, kind of serious. Well, they're all serious. But and so this is what we did. And um, um, it was interesting because being young and, you know, we all went in very sincerely. And I think, you know, hopefully did some good work. But of course, I was pretty young and new and naive and idealistic. So, um, uh, you know, it's funny because you're going in kind of in a teacher role. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole thing of, of what role we go into. I don't know if we'll talk about that or not as teachers or as just, you know, what, the, what we think our role is. But back then we were kind of in the teacher role, but you're really young and, and just kind of starting out ourselves. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I, I interviewed Sita, and of course, I, I knew Bo. I had uh, spent time with him at various conferences, and he came to Boulder a bit and, and yeah. uh, stayed with me. But um, yeah, so that's great you were involved with that. But you were teaching, you were a Buddhist practitioner then, so a new Buddhist practitioner? Actually, no. So back then, so I began, that was more in what, I don't know what you say, more of a Hindu-oriented yoga tradition, uh, which is what I started out with when I began meditating in 1970. It was kind of, I think, in the mid seventies, or kind of late seventies, where I kind of transitioned over in into the Buddhist world. That just kind of happened as as a natural evolution in my own 
Dharma practice. So, but right. back then it wasn't coming from a Buddhist perspective as more of a yogic okay. meditation oriented yogic tradition. So when you, did you continue to teach in, in the, these various facilities when you were teaching Buddhism, Dharma or things like that? Right. So, um, I was, um, uh, most active in the seventies. That's when I went into San Quentin was going into the Marin County jails. And then, and then through, uh, the eighties, I was really kind of more in the back. I was still going in, but other people were running programs that, uh, uh, there was things in the San Francisco jails and different, uh, juvenile hall down in Santa Cruz. And, you know, depending here and there, I was going in, um, um, programs, other people organized. And then, so I kept that up over time. And then, um, when I really kind of stepped up, uh, even another level was when, um, I think it was around 1990 when I started these, I was actually the Buddhist chaplain. It was a volunteer position, but I was the Buddhist chaplain in these two state prisons. And I started those programs and and I, those are programs are still going to this day. Oh, great, great. So, what aspects of Dharma do you feel that, as you, when you were a chaplain, that most resonated with the folks inside? Well, that's an interesting question. So, definitely, there's the aspects of people actually doing meditation practices. And there was a, it's just like in in just daily life for for all of us. You know, there are many people who are sincere what would you use the term Dharma practitioners or spiritual people? Um, and, you know, some, some really take to meditate, formal meditation a lot. And a lot of people, you know, it's hard in daily life to do. And, uh, um, and so some don't, the same thing in the prisons, there are, you know, some people really take the meditation practice and it actually has quite a strong impact. And for others, they don't, but they still perhaps take the teachings uh, uh, and try to apply them. And I think another piece that that was quite powerful is we would come in once a week and have a few hours to run our group and it you know the men i was only teaching in the men's uh, there are people who do it with women too but this was the men they um you know they formed a, a lot of good connections and support and actually places because in the prisons you probably know, you know, it's not a place, it, it, you know, you walk around defended and guarded probably almost the whole time. Right. And so this was a place where people could get real with each other, get vulnerable with each other, feel just the, the support of the community that developed. And at least during the time when they were in the safe uh, bubble that we would create, um, so, um, I think that probably was the biggest impact regardless of whether they actually meditated or not. They developed sort of a sangha together and then they were, yeah, that's right. And, um, even sometimes men would, I remember a time when men would say, you know, it, when we're out there in the yard, if something happens and you need my support, you know, I'm there for you kind of a thing. So I, I don't know how much it really carried out because I'm not around during those times. Right. So I think it was just the supportive community and that you could see there are other men who wanted to live in a different way. Right. It was very supportive. So looking for seeking something that would help them deal with their distress and suffering and, you know, the basic. Yeah. Basic, and right. <laughs> That's right. And I think for a lot of men, even if you didn't have these formal groups like like ours that people would join, you know, a lot of these guys get in there, uh, you know, they're young. 
uh, and this is a stereotype, but I, you know, there's a lot of truth. Maybe they were in gangs or just on their own involved in just certain way. And then if, especially those who've had long sentences, uh, um, you know, you get older and then we all change, right? None of us are the same as we were when we were, you know, when, when you're older, when you were 18 or whatever, and they mature and settle out. And some of these men really have gained a lot uh, the hard way, but have gained a lot of wisdom. Um, and I could tell you a lot of stories about that, but some of these men were just amazing. It was actually just quite, uh, I felt like, uh, just to be able to be in their presence was quite a gift for me. Uh, um, so, um, yeah. They, had, they developed a lot of insight and wisdom about their own life experience. Were able to share. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, these memories are coming out and speaking with you. I remember one man in particular, he was doing what they call life without. So he was doing a life sentence without the possibility of parole he was an older guy. He'd been in for a long time. And I remember him telling me, he said, you know, he said to me, you know, of course, I'd like to get out if I could. But he said, you know, I'm here and uh, I got myself in here. And uh, now that I am here, I think that I can really have something to offer other men and hopefully make a difference in their lives, uh, being like an elder and uh, kind of set an example and just being an elder support for people. And, and he really kind of took that role in a way that was quite uh, uh, beautiful to be around. So there were men like that. I'm not saying, I don't know what percentage of people got like that, but we certainly know it's possible. And there were men that can set the example like that. Yeah. So, you know, you would have, as a chaplain, you'd have people coming to you, that were maybe experiencing things like anxiety or panic and would right. you practices and stuff for that? Right. So, well, this gets into the whole thing of, for any of us, you know, you have, you, you there's, you, you want to offer what you know, and you don't want to try to teach or offer what you don't know. So, uh, I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not trained, but it's more like pastoral care or chaplaincy, something like that. So that stuff happened all the time. And I, I actually can think of a few specific instances I could share, but uh, in general, I think the feeling is, is that you just want to be a, an ally, a supportive presence. Sometimes that's what people need is just someone who is with them. And, you know, you're not like the teacher and they're the, you know, you don't set that dynamic up. You're just there with them as a caring, supportive person. And sometimes you do have wisdom to offer and, that that's great. And other times I've had, I remember a time somebody came to me in a very difficult situation, almost impossible asking me what to do. And, uh, it was like, and I did offer something and, um, um, but, um, you know, I didn't know the answer for him. Right. And, uh, right. and sometimes it's just the, your presence being right. here and listen. Well, that's very powerful. I think for all of us to be seen and heard in a way with, genuine care and love and, and just coming together with another human being to, to be really seen and gotten. Uh, maybe that's for all of us where so much healing can happen, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you, um, you've been around a long time. You founded things like mindful schools. So mindful yeah. schools, uh, <clears throat> one of the founders of that. And so, right. you know, they're teaching sort of, 
you've been, you've witnessed the mindfulness movement emerge, you know, beyond just the Dharma. Yes. And yes. So what are the differences when you're teaching just my, of course, I know the difference. So I'm curious to know yeah. what you think of the differences are between just simply teaching mindfulness to people and then the full on Dharmic path. Right. Well, this is an interesting uh, that you bring that up. Um, I've actually had, a, I, I think, hopefully we're beyond this kind of what I'm about to say now, but it, there was a long time when there was a quite a tension between what you'd call secular mindfulness right. and then Dharma people who would kind of argue, you know, mindfulness is great, but if it doesn't have kind of the Dharma ethical teachings right. and things like that, mindfulness uh, you know and it doesn't have the rest of dharma you know you're it's yeah. and and i remember um a man named bob stall who uh he's one of the he's a long he's been a friend of mine for many years and uh he's he's sort of been in both worlds like i have the dharma world and i guess i'm just for a bit, lack of a better term i'll call it secular mindfulness <laughs> And I remember we were having this discussion. I was at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. We were teaching a retreat and people were coming around about this when, when Mindful Schools was just starting. And I remember Bob says, I don't care about this secular versus Dharma or whatever. He goes, I'm just interested in relieving suffering. And what I want, when he said what he wanted to do, which, which I really uh, resonated with, you just want to meet a person, meet a situation on its own terms. And then the question is, what is appropriate? What's needed? What is, and it's not one way. And so I've, I find that that really is, and really going into the prisons, the same thing with mindful schools. Mindful schools doesn't teach directly in, uh, in itself in classrooms. We used to go in ourselves and just, we started off going into the, some of these real kind of inner city schools in Oakland and underserved communities. And they were, that was pretty rough. It wasn't like prison, but it, you know, it had its own challenges. And then you had to come in and meet the students, the teachers, the community. And here you are coming from the outside. You have to be re very respectful. Same thing in prison. You know, I had to be very respectful that, you know, I'm coming in and in a few hours, I'm walking out the, the gate. Those guys aren't. So uh, you have to be very uh, humble and respectful of that and knowing that, you know, you can come in and sort of, you don't want to come in and dispense your, your wisdom and then leave, you know, you have to really come there in a real genuine way. So I find that if for all of these, whether it's mindful schools or anything, and it's just like living daily life, we want to meet life just in an authentic way. And then hopefully if we've developed some kind of hopefully a little bit more of, of a steadiness of mind and clarity of mind and a little bit of life experience, you could say wisdom, I suppose, uh, then, then um, if we're being authentic, then hopefully the, the, the best responses in life reveal themselves. That's not always true, but I think a better chance. Uh, and maybe that's all we need to know, right? Yeah, that's true. So what did you, you know, you said you, so when you were teaching in the prisons, what did you learn about yourself when you were, you know, when you were being a chaplain? Did you learn things about your own practice or yourself? Well, sure. Um, as I think back, well, what comes to mind now is, um, well, that's very interesting. I don't know if it was something special going to the prisons that hopefully we don't just learn in life. You know, if we're, if we're, you know, we all have our blind spots and we all have uh, our delusions 
And hopefully that's not the whole story. Hopefully it's a mix, right? Where we have kind of our wisdom and our good heart and what and from a Buddhist language, we call it our wholesome parts of ourselves. And then we've got what you call the unwholesome parts or the difficult. I like that language because it doesn't put a judgment on it. It just acknowledges that we're a mix. And um, there's no question like coming into the prisons, for example, those guys, uh, if you're, you, you know, um, People would used to say, uh, you know, they've got very strong, uh, highly attuned uh, bullshit detectors. And it's not that they're looking for trying to in yeah. some way, but just if, you know, if you can just come in there away and you don't have an attitude and, and, and you had to come in. I remember actually in my early days, this changed over time. Um, it was scary. You know, you go into San Quentin. And uh, I guess it's like any prisons, but the first place I went was San Quentin and just the name San Quentin uh, had a lot of, <laughs> I thought, oh my God. And I remember walking in when you go through the gate, yeah. it feels serious. Uh, you know, you go through one gate opens, it closes. Slam, and, slam. Yeah. yeah. And then you're, there's another gate that opens. And when you're in there, you're in there. These guys are walking around and it's like, oh my God, what am I doing here? And, and plus, um, you, you know that you're there doing the best you can, but it's not like you're coming there and you're the one who knows. Right. You know what you know, but you also are aware of you, you, everything you don't know or whatever. And so you just have to come in being, again, it's like being your authentic self. And um, there's, a, there's another piece, too, about coming in to be the one who's coming in to help, not to come in to save necessarily, but I'm the helper. And yes, you are doing it. I mean, of course, you're coming in to be helpful and hopefully make a difference. But you have to kind of let let all that go. And it's just um, um, you got it. It's the same thing in mindful schools. When we first started, uh, I don't know if I want to get off that too much, but it was very similar in mindful schools. Uh, I actually created the first curriculum when we started. There was just me and another person. And and I got some help when we created the first curriculum. And I think we did an okay job. We got a little help from others. And then I went into the first school and like, I didn't have training as a, uh, um, in childhood development or as an educator, just like I wasn't trained as a chaplain when I first went in, but I did have a lot of faith. I knew I was coming in sincerely. And the, the real thing is you have to be willing to just, show up the best you can and take what comes back. And if you screw up, you have to just not have an ego about it and be able to just go, you know, you're right. Wow. That, I said the wrong thing there and that caused some pain for some or whatever. And you learn. And so you bring that open attitude about yourself. That was a great learning. I think in the prisons too, to be able to go in like that, because it's not like you go in and you're never going to make a mistake. Right. Or trigger someone off or something like that. Right. And in ways you just didn't even know your own blind spot. Yeah. So you don't just have a, I mean, I, I found going in, I mean, I can have curriculum, but then I usually just throw it out the door and you write and just deal right. with what's happening in the room. Cause you never know what's going to be happening. Yeah. So you know, I, I'll just say that just reminded me when I, that way, way back when I was going into Marin County, there was this drug and alcohol rehab center that I went to. I can't even remember the name. It may not even be around. But uh, and these were people who were sent there. They had had uh, 
maybe some minor drug offenses or whatever. And so they, the court, instead of going to jail, they were in this residential thing. So they didn't really want to be there, but they were, they were forced to be there. And part of they made them come to this yoga class I was teaching. All and told. I was in there trying to get them to uh, do some yoga asanas or meditate a little, whatever we were doing. And they just weren't going for it. And at some point we finally just learned, like we just dropped, it reminded me when you said you can go in with a curriculum, we just dropped the whole thing and just said like, what's up guys kind of a thing. And we just all kind of talked. And I thought that was more valuable than some meditation technique. Yeah. And but you had to show up for that's what the situation was presenting. And so you had to respond to that. Yeah. And yeah, right. I, I mean, I was going in before COVID into a facility where they the administration had heard the word mindfulness. They'd been to some, I don't know, online courses or something about it. And so they thought mindfulness was a great thing. So they had the word being mindful up all over the walls for the prisoners. <laughs> and so they were using mind, you know, but the, the, when they came into the class, cause our class was called mindfulness based emotional intelligence. They yeah, yeah. And they were all like, we hate mindfulness. They all said that we hate mindfulness. I said, tell me why. And then they, they were like, well, cause everybody's always saying be mindful, be mindful. So they were using be mindful as a way of punishing, you right. know, I was like, okay, I won't mention the word mindfulness. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Drop that whole idea. You know, <laughs> so then I was like, okay, so what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can yeah. really, re I totally relate to what you're saying. It actually reminds me when we first started going, we still, it's still part of the mindful schools curriculum. The very first thing we would do going into the classroom, the first day we didn't say about be mindful and everything. None of that works, but we had a, a really beautiful bell, like a Buddhist bell and it had a beautiful tone. And when you'd ring it, it really had a sustained ring or tone and we would just say tell you what you know get the get the kids and say here just take a minute and listen and you ring the bell and it had this magical yeah. <laughs> uh, effect of everybody would just quiet down and then we would say okay um now how does that feel let's try it again and notice how you feel in your mind when you just feel the spell and some of the kids didn't like it. It's not going to work for everyone, but right. some of the kids said, wow, that makes me feel kind of nice. And then that was the doorway in uh, to say, Oh, you actually had an experience that felt kind of good. What if we could deepen that and you could have more of that in your life kind of a thing. So we, right. we, we try to get them to get into some experiential thing right. first. Yeah. I, you know, in prisons, it's a little trickier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would bring in music and we'd play music and, you know, I'd say, can we look, tell me when you hear the like drums come in just raise your hand. And, you know, so I try to get them to notice things in the actual, whatever music they wanted to hear, I would bring in and we do movement, you know, different kinds of dancing and, you know, goofy stuff, you know, so it, it was, it, it worked out fine, but every once in a while I'd sort of say, so I think that was mindfulness. And they'd all laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They hated the yeah. work. Then they were like, oh, okay, we don't hate mindfulness so much. And, you know, yeah. we, do the, we do the best we can because no matter what we do, it's going to resonate for my, my experience was there was a, some percentage of the, of the, of the men that it's just, it's like out in the world, right? It's just right. not going to connect for them at all. Right. And then there's some percentage that will get uh, some, some good out of it. And then there's also was a percentage that it, actually was quite uh, life-changing for people. So it was a mix. But I think if that's kind of true in even Dharma communities and out just in daily life kind of Dharma communities. Oh, it's, a, it's a range. Yeah. 
So um, isn't the Sati Center, don't you have a chaplaincy program with that? Or? Right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So you train people to be chaplains? Right. So what are some of the, you know, if you're, if you're, I'm sort of mixing up modalities here, but you know, when yeah, yeah. you're training people to go in and facilitate programs, I mean, teach programs, that's, you know, that's kind of people want to go teach things that they're excited about, but maybe like you say, they're 19 years old and they just read a book or something they're very excited about. They want to teach it to people. But um, what do you suggest to people is like to kind of like back off the kind of going in and downloading something to people that well, but that, in in so I don't teach the Sati Center. I've, I've I, I know about it. I've actually oh. participated in it and uh, been around it. So and and so I have actually been to a lot of the trainings there. So I know what they're doing. But so I'm not. I I, I be a little careful because I'm not really one of the okay. teachers. But I can say a little bit. A lot of the time is well. If you're coming in as a Buddhist chaplain, the, uh, you do want of course, be grounded in some of the foundational teachings. You need to have that there. That you, even if you're going to drop all of that and just, just be present in some way, you still have to have a good grounding and all of that. No question about that. And your own practice for sure. But a lot of the training is about just what you and I are, are discussing now about what is it about just meeting a present moment with someone in a way without your agenda, without your, and just to really just show up and be there and then what might come. And, um, uh, I remember one of the, the, the teacher was just trying to make a point, you know, when you go in, you do, there's a balance, like, of course you want to be helpful. If something's broken, it's nice to try and fix it. And so I don't think we have to throw that away, but they were trying to train when we were talking and people were bringing up, real challenging things in their life and then how you respond. And then the, 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 the uh, person who was teaching the chaplaincy training that day would, would come and listen to people. And then the person who was responding, they'd say, you're trying to fix it. Let go of fixing. You're going, oh, stop fixing. Just be present. And I think he was just trying to make a point of the quality of like, what is the best thing that will fix? And sometimes it's not like, oh, I'm trying to fix you. It's it's right. just more the attitude of how we are present. So a lot of the training really is about just how do you show up in the way that's most appropriate or helpful for people? Uh, and a lot of it is sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't like this word ego because it's it has a lot of weird meanings. Yeah. But just to say a lot of it is getting our ego out of the way. Right. This yeah. is a way of speaking. Yeah. Um, what do you, so you kind of summed up like what advice you would give to people to maybe just like be in kind of an open space where you are open to listening to what other people, where they're at and what, what, yeah. the, you know, what they're, what they need, what they want. Well, that's right. And, and the other thing, when you say what advice would, uh, a couple of things generally, you know, when you're going in somewhere, um, now I've started some programs where. I wasn't with a mentor myself where I just like the, the two I did in the, the two California state prisons. Uh, uh, I just re I just cold called and reached out to the oh. head of uh, the, anyway, I found contacts there and I just cold called and we and took actually over a period of more than a year and a couple of years to kind of get it to happen. So, but I'd been practicing a long time. I felt comfortable to do that, but I think most, so that's fine. I think most people probably will go into, if they're younger, it's not about age young, but if they're newer, 
you know, you're probably not going to so much go start your own program. Maybe you could, I, I, that might be fine, but you're going to be with pe people who are more experienced. So part of it is, you know, we all, we, we watch and learn and get feedback. And so part of it is that, but the other thing is you just have to, um, I was going to say not be afraid, but it's actually okay to be afraid. I shouldn't say it that way, but we want to be, uh, just willing to put, willing to step into something, even maybe if we are afraid or something, not, not being afraid, even of being afraid, that's kind of sounds a little weird, but just being able to just go in being our authentic self, even if we're not so clear in ourselves. I mean, that's okay. Cause we're being authentic and to not know, um, uh, it just reminds me, I, I, uh, just a quick story. It's short. Uh, this was, I mentioned earlier, this, this is a guy who came up to me in Salinas Valley state prison. That's a tough prison in California. They call it a level four. It's like people hear about, um, Pelican Bay in California. This is another Pelican Bay where it's like guys who didn't make it in other prisons, you know, or commit or got sent here. And so it's tough guy came up to me, he'd been in a gang, you know, whatever. And, and he said, you know, he had stopped. He was a Dharma guy. He took it very seriously. And he said to me, his gang has tasked him to go stab someone in the other gang oh. in retaliation for whatever. I don't remember what it was. And he said, what do I do? He asking me, he says, cause if, if he says, I'm not going to go stab someone, I'm a, but he says, if I don't do it, my own gang is going to come and get me after me, maybe stab him or whatever. Oh, what should I do? And I remember very clearly, I said to him, um, I don't know. I said, the only thing I know. And I, and I even said to him, listen, just like I said earlier in our discussion, I said, I'm getting ready to walk out of here in a couple of hours. You're not. So I, you know, this is tough. And, and I said, um, the only thing I can tell you is to the extent you're able to not be reacting out of fear, anxiety, which I understand that you may or may not be able to do that, but to the extent you're able to just settle yourself and have some kind of balance or something, just even a little bit, you have a better chance of making a wiser decision, whatever it's going to be. And then what happened was he, um, I didn't see him for a few months. No. And then one day he showed back up at the group and I go, what happened? What happened? And what he told me was, uh, he said, uh, well, he, he said, well, what he decided to do was when they were out on the yard, he had, they call them shanks, which is their homemade knives. He had a shank where everybody could see what was going on. He lunged for the person he's supposed to stab on purpose, somehow like stumbled and tripped while he was lunging. And so everyone could see he went for the guy, tried to stab him, but missed and fell down. So he satisfied his own gang that he did his, his best. He didn't actually stab anyone. And he took it on. This is his own words. He said he took it on his own karma that, uh, uh, that's not me saying that I want to be very respectful, but he said that and he got thrown and they called thrown in the hole, solitary yeah. confinement for a few months. And then he was out. And I like to think <laughs> that my wise advice <laughs> had, a, had an effect, but it, that was a creative way to engage with that. Yeah. He actually came up with a creative solution given yeah. You know, yeah. he didn't have any good options. Yeah, so he could see the, you know, kind of the strategic yeah. move. And that was, well, that's right. kind of, that's a great story. Thank you. And thank you so much for meeting with me today and talking sure. about your experience. I think it was really Yeah, important. yeah. Happy. I'm glad to be able to connect. It's nice. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.